Quick, come up with something funny to say. Hello? Yo. Bort. Oh, that's really cool. Somehow I think you're lying. Uh-huh. Oh, fail. Oh. Ah! Bad Philosophy, episode 45, recorded on September 13th, 2009. Bach in Business. Hello, everyone. Welcome, man. One, two, Bad Philosophy, episode 45. We are coming to you now uh, live on a little different situation than what you might be used to. We're on Justin.tv instead of Stickham. Uh, we, and we've got some pretty interesting guests on the show. Uh, two people that have, to my knowledge, never been on the show together before. Um, no. Nope. No, we have not. Yeah. Never. First off, to my right, Michael Hayslip. Say a little bit about oh, yourself. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm a uh, history major here at Texas Tech, philosophy minor. And um, I'm going to learn a lot today. Good. Our second guest, who uh, you might recognize as Julie from Korea, yeah. um, is on the show once again. Julie Meadows, welcome to Bad Philosophy. Yep. Last time you uh, heard my voice, I was about 14 time zones away, and I'm back. I'm back here from the future. So. Woo! Is is it any better? I miss the future. Uh, that's unfortunate. Well, now I'm in the future. <laughs> and uh, that voice be from beyond is, of course, Kevin Saunders. Hi. So, Kevin, you are coming at us from uh, Oxford, Ohio still, right? Yeah, I'm going to be here for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you joining us here on Bad Philosophy. And uh, we have a rather interesting topic on the show today, something I don't think we've ever talked about before, which is the philosophy of music. Uh, now, recently here at Texas Tech, uh, Dr. William Wesney, who is a world-renowned pianist, um, did a symposium with Dr. Cynthia Grund, who's a professor from Finland, I believe? I think Denmark. Denmark. Um, American, but teaches in Denmark. And um, this symposium was the, the trial run of sort of a, a project that they've begun to... I don't know, define uh, the philosophy of music, uh, talk about the philosophy of music, uh, a, perform some sort of a synthesis between the philosophical side of the aesthetics of music and the performance side, which uh, is, of course, William Wesney. Um, it was an interesting symposium. Uh, Julie and I both went, and it, it lasted about two hours, the, the main part of it. There was some talking, there was some... Uh, some recital pieces to go uh, along with the concepts they were discussing. Uh, but it was a lot of sort of abstract discussion of the philosophy of music. And I'd like to kind of to start out with that and then see where possibly we can go, uh, forming some sort of a philosophy of music in a very basic sense. Uh, so, Julie, you were there. What were your uh, first impressions of what they said? Kind of whatever you can remember of what Dr. Wesney and Dr. Grun brought up. Um, it was really interesting. Um, I actually am, was, currently am not a student of Dr. Wesney, but I've studied with him for two years. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting um, to see kind of some of the concepts that he has talked about in the lessons, mm -hmm. like um, brought before an audience and kind of talked about more openly. Yeah. And some of the things that he's written in his book also. It's called The Perfect Wrong Note. Um, huh. It's a, I don't know, it's a book. It's, it would apply to you whether you're a musician or not necessarily. So I think for me, actually, the part that just floored me was when the Chinese girl stood up and started talking. Mm. Um, yeah, there was a I'm discussion sure we'll period that, following the, uh, 
the main part, which that that had its own sort of life uh, yeah. afterward. But uh, from what I can recall, Dr. Wesney had um, he'd never done formal philosophy really, and he still hasn't. But um, he read a book when he was in his uh, late teens, early twenties, by uh, Susan Langer. Um, called, I think, just the philosophy of music, or a philosophy of music. Um, Langer is not terribly well respected in the philosophical community, and this this was, of course, brought up. Um, but something that, that Langer talked about in her book really struck Wesney as being true. Uh, her, something in her description of the experience of performing music or the the manifestation of music and it was this this concept of meeting that came up a lot in the rest of the symposium that musical expression is an interaction of sorts maybe not communication but it's certainly some sort of a meeting between um, audience and performer and uh, Dr. Wesney said this this really perfectly describes sort of the feeling he's had um, doing performances on the piano. And I kind of wondered how significant that was um, initially and what sort of philosophical concept it was getting at. Before we go too much into that, I just want to get y'all's initial thoughts on whether one can even form a philosophy of music in the same way that we formed a, a philosophy of language, um, philosophy of art, whether music should, should just follow those rules of categorization or whether it should be something different. Maybe it poses some, some problems. Uh, let's start with, with Michael. Well, it, it, it may be worthy of its own philosophy, just considering the fact that it's, it's a different kind of art form than, say, um, painting. Yeah. Um, the, the rules of aesthetics, at least to my, as far as I know, have mainly applied to the visual arts. Or and um, maybe to the written word a little bit. I'm really not quite sure. Mm-hmm. But um, music's a very different art form from, say, sculpture or yeah. painting. That I think it. I, I think it might. The concepts, you know, revealed in music and in performing music itself, might be. Um, may might be deserving of its own field. Maybe perhaps um, somewhat related to, say, theater. Yeah. A little bit. Well, and let's go to our, our resident theater expert. Kevin, what do you think about all this? Well, I think we need to, because I'm, I'm a little unclear, we need to kind of define what we mean by a philosophy of music. Like, are we just trying to sum up what music is, or are we trying to say something more than that, like its purpose, its overall ideas, its structure? What are we looking at here? Um, I think all of that... Um, Certainly defining music, because part of any any philosophy is to define what you're talking about. Uh, philosophy of language has very much taken the form of, you know, what do we consider language? Um, not necessarily how it operates, but what is what is necessary for language, without which something, whatever it is, would not be considered language. And uh, it's it's the same thing in music. I think... One of our primary goals, I guess, starting out would be to say, what is music? <laughs> As Socrates would say. But, uh, I mean, we could spend a whole episode just on that one question, but, Kevin, what do you think? What, what is music? Well, I think, and I'm, I'm a very broad person, and I have broad ideas, too, but <laughs> my, my take on this thing is, is it's really hard to define anything just without getting recursive somewhere along the lines. Yeah. 
what I can say of music is, is first of all, it has an aural component. I know Julie can correct me and say it's actually pronounced oral, but aural is easier to, to hear the difference in spelling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is, am I correct there, Julie? You, sh you shook your I, head. I, uh, we called our class oral skills. <laughs> okay. I, okay. Someone, a music major, has told me that it was it was it's pronounced oral, but oral is what it looks like and what it sounds like. So a u r o l. Yeah. <laughs> That's but what we're going with. Are it the 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 one thing I can say assuredly about music is that it has an oral component. Mm -hmm. It might solely be its oral component, but I'm not quite as safe. You know, or or happy saying that music is heard. Music is heard. That kind of going that that came up a, uh, a few times in the symposium. Actually, uh, the idea of of music is not in the page. Uh, music is in the air. It's in the vibrations, or is it in our head? Uh, and I think the kind of the consensus they came to is music is the experience that we have in our minds when the vibrations are translated into uh, thoughts or patterns in our mind. Um, that the music itself as vibration is not necessarily music. I, I don't know, because if you want to get really technical here, mm -hmm. Beethoven wrote like over half of his works after he was deaf. So that music was solely in his mind. Like He knew what it would sound like. Right. But so that then, was he not experiencing music since he could not physically like well, feel no, the vibrations? It was still in happening. The event was still in his okay. mind, though. So mu music is is a an event in the mind, you know, and that so, really so doesn't then, say much more. So then, would we say that um, music, as it exists, especially in the case of Beethoven, is something that is primarily um, mental that you don't actually have to hear the vibrations? <sighs> you know. Think of having a song stuck in your head. True enough. Um, obviously, you're not physically hearing the song when it's "quote unquote" stuck in your head. But um, you have heard it. But you have heard it, and at some yeah. point, at some yes. in time. So a song stuck in your head is more like recalling a sensation, sort uh -huh. of like we can yes. recall visual images um, or we recall information. Um, emotions, especially when it comes to music, because that's what's really important. Because it's the it's the is sound. It? That, that creates those feelings. Is it, though, necessarily? Yeah. I wonder. I think it is. You can have unemotional what, music. Julie, what was the piece? Um, John Cage. You told me the name Four of it. Four minutes the name and 33 like seconds? Yes. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, that's exactly. I'm, I'm glad you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. That's good. You, you need to figure that out, Kevin. Well, what was the name of the piece again? Uh, it's called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. And yeah. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. No. Go, it, go it, ahead. It is a... Um, it's a piece where John Cage um, brought out a stool and sat on the stage for four minutes and 33 seconds in silence, and the sounds that you heard around you were the composition. Ooh. So. So, like, the, the, the audience shuffling or somebody coughing. Yes, or even, like, some, a sound outside the auditorium that could still be heard or... But, but that was... I think the point of that was more just to make you more aware of like the sounds that do go on every day yeah. maybe um, I don't I don't know if, if he meant to necessarily classify that as music or if he meant to say that the sounds around you are music I'm not exactly sure what his point was exactly. what do you think Kevin uh, I think it was music um, because we call it music but it's it was the external edges of of what we do with music. Uh, John Cage was a, a very experimental artist. He may I think he's still alive. Yeah, he's still okay. alive. 
I know Cunningham died about a month or two ago, which is very sad. <laughs> but uh, Cage is still around anyway. And his, I mean, he was he was experimenting with found sounds and, and stretching the boundaries of music uh, beyond, you know, Beethoven, Bach, and even uh, Philip Glass. I mean, Philip Glass, if you hear Philip Glass piece, and his is very modern, it's still, it, it's identifiable as music. There's instruments being played. There there are, you know, you, you can write down the piece in a lot of cases. You, mm-hmm. know, you, can, you can put a notation to it. Whereas with a lot of John Cage's work, it wasn't... You, you couldn't write it down. You couldn't graph it on a staff. Yeah. Well, um, I, and, I, and I think in that case, it, that is a borderline, a borderline case. And it's, it's a postmodernist thing, right, to do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to kind of question, okay, well, where little, is the, the boundary? There's, there's some postmodern there. Yeah. Um, and I like that because it, it shows kind of that our, our definition isn't so comfortable as we would like it to be. But you brought up something there just, just really briefly that music is that which we call music. And that actually isn't terribly far-fetched from the definition that generally gets accepted of art, um, or at least that's one of... That's what I call art, too. Right. Because <laughs> or art, it, it's not necessarily art is that which we call art, but art is that which is similar to that which we call art. Because, you know, simply calling something art is not enough in most cases for it to be it art. It is in my case. But it must be similar to other things that we have called art in the past. But we've only called those things art because somebody called them art first. There, you, can't, you can't use that excla- exclamation or that, that idea for all art because there had to be a first art, mm-hmm. a first sculpture, a first song that we said, okay, this is a song. Well, but, why is it a song? Well, it's like all the other songs. Well, this is the first song. It's not <laughs> like anything else. I don't know if there was a first song, though. Like, I... I because I think what would there was happen- a first thing that was called a song. Maybe I, I think music is a is a much different case. Art is extremely broad, and I think music falls under the category of art. Certainly, in many cases, but music itself does have some unique features, like what we've pulled out so far: oral conveyance. Like the medium of music is sound. Yes. So if it's not done with sound. It can't be music, and that's why we kind of said, "Well, the music is the music in the in the page. Is the music in the vibrations?" Well, no, it's the experience we have as a result of the sound. But the sound is necessary for yes. music. Can we say much more beyond that? Like, uh, I think that's what they were trying to do in this symposium was like to add some things onto it. It's a meeting. It's a uh, it's a conveyance of emotions. They didn't say that, but uh, it's it's I inherently gestural. Some some of these other concepts. Julie, do you remember anything anything more from what they they said about it? Um, I I was really interested when they t- did talk about the gesturing. Um, mm-hmm. They talked about um, the the study that they are about to conduct, where they have motion sense like the, the entire audience motion captured. Yes, yeah. and um, and also the performer, and they are going to see how the motions of are the yeah the gestures of each component like fit together or. And my guess would be that they they would, um, but yeah. I don't know. That's really interesting. I, but again, know. it's tr- it's it's an interesting question. Like, are then gestures necessary for music? Like, if someone doesn't respond gesturally to music, no, not is it necessarily. Not music, or is it not good music? I, I don't know. What, what do you think, See, Michael? Well, you've opened a can of words with that last sentence. Um, true. I mean, of good. 
Oh, okay. Well, we, right. we won't There's, go there yet. Right. I mean, like um, <laughs> the, the the one interesting thing to consider, and um, Kevin would definitely agree with me on this, is that um, art, including music, is subjective. Yes, I agree. With you. you you cannot objectively. I'm not sure you can objectively define it because for me, no. if, if something is music, the sounds have to be organized and it has to sound nice. It can't just. I mean, like um, I remember taking music appreciation and. Um, they were talking about a bunch of uh, a lot of avant-garde music. Where so they you would, don't like twelve tone and oh, serial, oh, serialism. God, twelve tone. Hate that stuff. Stinks. Really? Oh. Yeah. Because well, you're have a to. music major, Julie. The twelve tone I've heard stinks. <laughs> I mean, do you remember uh, when we tried to play the atonal piano piano game? That and, <laughs> and <laughs> that's actually one of Doctor Westney's games. Really? Is yeah. Is there like try try and play something, Michael? And I mean, it sounded awful. Just for me, like music has to. There has to be something that that I can identify with in it. A and, pattern, a and rhythm, I can't, a form. And I yeah. can't identify. I can't identify to the uh, twelve tone system. I just I can't do it. I mean, it's just. Um, I mean, to me, it's ju- it's just like a, a lot of other avant-garde movements, which were um, people complaining about um, the massive death toll of the First World War, which deserved to be complained complained about. But uh, in a way that made sense, not in a way that... Um, not through crappy music. <laughs> just that, that, like, I'm just going to challenge your perceptions. You guys to are challenge way your perceptions. Subjective. Yeah, maybe, but... You guys are, are, are harsh. They are uh, very up, harsh. I want to bring up something that um, was mentioned in the chat room. Uh, Kathleen said, if you, have, if you have to have audio to have music, uh, da, 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 what if you can't hear it but can only feel vibrations and sense rhythm? Is it still music? Uh, some combinations of sound wave cause neural impulses. Music affects the brain uh, in a positive way. I think that's still sound perception. It's okay, it's so not we're perception. Sound perception. Yeah, <laughs> we're getting broader. Because again, we want to say like th- the music is an event in the brain, so sound perception is necessary for music. Um, you can't have well unless you're synesthetic. Um, you could have like a visual pattern create That's music true. in your head. That's oh, true. that would be cool. But it's got a visualizer on iTunes that does just that. I don't even know what well, that is. Well, that's going the other way. That's going from from music to a pattern. But I'm I'm saying like, what if someone experiences visual stimulus as sound? So you know they see red and they hear an A. <laughs> or something like that. Instead of instead of um, sound, a sound spectrum corresponding to to music in their head, the visual spectrum corresponds to to tones in their head. Um, I, could, I could see that. Our box keeps just getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. I, yeah. I again, I want to say those are edge cases, though. Um, and and in the in That's the interest of kind is. of broadly more broad discussion, let's let's go and say we we have a general understanding of what music is. Let's talk about what music does, or what we do with music. Um, so, one of the things that, that Dr. Westney brought up was, well, music doesn't seem to be like language. It doesn't seem to convey concepts or information. Um, or it has a way of, of conveying that which we cannot express in words, the ineffable. And actually, the, the, the title of the symposium was Playing the Ineffable. Playing the ineffable. What do y'all think of that? Does music communicate, or is it inherently in uncommunicating? See, when they were talking about about um, oh, what was her name? The professor. I just drew a blank Cynthia on her Grund? name. Yes, yeah. Dr. Grun was talking about um, how she had used music in her classroom and played a piece and asked the students to write down what it reminded them of. Yes. 
like a, a physical object or, or something um, that it would make them think about. And she said that a lot of times the results were kind of similar and would kind of match together. But I wondered if that had something to do with uh, just previous experiences. I wonder if she had played the same piece in a classroom full of like Indian students or yeah. in another in another culture that may not associate like a, like the tones running up and then down is right. like a flowing river. I, I wonder I wondered kind of if the results would be the same there. Yeah. Or if that had to do with just previous experience and um, drawing from that. Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, I, I certainly think that music does have a sort of ineffable quality to it. Like, um, there's a, there, there's some songs when I listen to, like, I get a feeling when I listen to that song that nothing else, nothing else really gives me that feeling. And, like, when I try to recall it without the aid of the song or the piece that was playing, I can't do it exactly. Mm-hmm. But when I hear the song, I can immediately, I immediately have that sensation, that feeling um, that's very difficult to describe. Yeah. And um, it's, I think that certainly is a, a valid point, that there is an ineffable quality to it. What do you think, Kevin? Yes and no. I think music can be evocative, but I think Julie's closer to the, to the truth with her, her cultural basis ideas. Mm-hmm. In that, I think it makes a lot of sense that. Well, okay, here's an example. A lot of famous Mozart pieces were first heard by American children in Tom and Jerry cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love I, Tom I saw and the Jerry. movie Amadeus once. Yeah, very <laughs> good film. And in the, at the beginning of the movie, um, the guy that hates Amadeus, Solari. Um, oh, Salieri. Solari, Whatever. Anyway, Salieri, um, at the beginning, he plays... He's in an institution. The movie's different from a play, but he's in an institution, and someone comes in, and he's like, Jürgen has this piece, and he plays one of his pieces, and he's like, no. He goes, well, what about this? And he plays a little snippet of a Mozart piece, and I hear it, and I'm like, I heard that on a cartoon. Yeah. And that's where... That's, and and it, it's a Mozart piece. I mean, one of the... Arguably one of the most brilliant composers of all time wrote something that I heard in a children's cartoon. Um, and so it's going to have certain evocative qualities to me that it probably wouldn't have for Mozart hmm. because he had no idea what Tom and Jerry were. Uh, you know, so I, I, I appreciate this, but, but um, I, think, I think it bears bringing up one of the, the concepts that they, they introduced much later, which was the idea that, that music triggers response. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in all of these cases, what we're talking about is, is the music triggers a certain emotion or memory um, that maybe you, you associated with those tones or that specific piece earlier on in your life as a result of your culture, maybe as a result of your, your history, which really are kind of the same thing. Um, but yeah, that, that it's, it's not really conveying information, it's triggering information. Right, right. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, not, it's not necessarily something um, that's going to be the same right. or, or going to convey one thing to want to everyone. The same I mean, way that a word means one thing. Right. Sometimes it means two things. I, and I think that, three, that's what they, it, it they were It means something and not... It means one thing and not another thing. I mean, that, that's what Wesney said. It's, that's what language is. That's why we can have language because right. these certain formations of sound mean one thing and definitely that thing and not everything else. Well, in the case, I guess, where they mean more than one thing, the, um, it would be contextual. Yeah, we can still kind of piece it together. Yes. But if you had a word that meant everything, 
it would literally mean nothing. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And vice versa. Um, the same way with music, I don't think music inherently means anything. And I don't think it, any, it, any, any composer, if they tried, could compose a piece that would mean one thing and not another for everyone, the same way that language um, does. I don't know about that either. What do you think, Kevin? Can you provide a counterexample? Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. Okay, well... It has a very straightforward meaning... But but um, is that meaning based on the lyrics? That okay. Let's not talk about lyrical music. That that again. This discussion well, that's was exclusive. That's that's being excluding of something that. But that's based on the lyrics. Yeah. If, that's if you we're are talking a, about music that has language as a component of music. Let's let's separate out the language from the music. Now, if you played that for someone who lived in the boonies in Indonesia, would they understand? Like the would they un, would they draw the same meaning from that set of not necessarily but oral I, stimuli. The music is contextual. I I will concede that. Um, As well, but you the should. idea that I'm trying I'm trying to put across and, and, and the the this immediate removal of lyric music from the from the conversation seems very strange to me because well, well it's not the lyrics the but thing. but the meaning in the words in the lyrics you yeah. have to remove that from the situation because then you're throwing in. Words. Yes. We're still talking about two separate things. Now, lyrical music is interesting because it's language as music, but we're still talking about language. It's language piggybacking on top of music. Um, and language we already understand and have kind of established, I, I hope, um, has meaning. Yes. Um, obviously, you have to understand the language, but once you're within the language, you understand that the words in the in a song mean one thing and not another but the music say say like the backbeat or the the rhythm the melody of party in the usa does that convey something at no point will i say that music is universal or any art form is universal or anything is universal so it's it's hard to say that if nothing is universal in music or in music specifically then i don't think there's a problem with Acknowledging lyrical content and lyrical meaning, um, the the voice is often called an instrument, particularly by those who sing, and the lyrical tones have meaning. We don't ascribe always ascribe it to them, but you could listen to. I'm making this up, but you could listen to a classical piece called Concerto 12, and. Given the right context, you could understand what the author was trying to do with that. The composer was trying to do with that. If it was, if it had lyrics, is that what you're trying no, to you, say? No, without without lyrics. I'm saying without so, lyrics. So, and when you um, say context, you mean like, okay, so the author was born in this. The, the composer was born in this country. Um, he grew up an orphan. Maybe he was poor. I don't know what that is. But, but the the right context to understand "Party in the USA" by Miley Cyrus. Is knowing English, is perhaps living in the USA, yeah, perhaps having gone through a party. But then that's not a universal conveyance of the same meaning. No. But I'm, I know I'm, I'm saying I said there is no universal conveyance. It's okay. Impossible. Well, well, we're not saying music ha- can convey a universal meaning, but uh, think about it this way: it, if music conveys anything, it must be universal because there aren't dialects of music. All right. There's music and there's everything else that that we don't call music. Um, so if if music has any meaning whatsoever, 
wouldn't it be universal? Does music have meaning? I don't know. That's oh. what we're trying. I, I think Kevin, you were sort if, of arguing for that, right? If it's going to have a meaning, the meaning will have to be applied by the listener, by the audience. Yeah. And again, that gets back to the notion of triggering. So there, there's right. no, yeah. there's nothing being communicated with music. I, I think. No, you can't say that. You can't say that because English is not universal. However, I can converse with you. I can convey meaning through our shared context of what this is. Now, I can't share it with everybody, but I can share it with someone with the same context. Music can convey. It can't convey universally. I don't even think it could reliably, though, and to the same extent as language. Because... It's, it's just less codified. That doesn't mean it's less... That, I mean, A is A... In, on the musical scale, B is B, C is C. There's an there's a actual you know, wavelength that achieves these notes. If you are, well, in Western music. Yeah. Yes, yes. But that's, that's a codification that we have created. Yes. So that note in, in Western music, in that context, is always going to be that note. We've even created the octave system where you can have variations on that note. But that's a well, we didn't create it, but yeah. Yeah. Somebody, somebody. I, I want to I draw a distinction, though, real quick here, because what we were saying earlier is that, like Julie brought up the example of the uh, different musical pieces that seemed to evoke the same response in people, uh, the same, you know, caused them to, to think of the same things, and we, we posited that that was because of cultural context and upbringing. I, I still doubt that if you put a truly random sampling of people in a room that you would that they would get the same meaning from a song and and even if even if they were all brought up in the same cultural context you still have people saying well wind and not river or uh, you know sunlight instead of river it, it's not anywhere near as reliable as language uh, even under the best of circumstances uh, and uh, I, I just don't think we can say that, that music has that, that purpose of conveying emotion. It can't. It, well, it has the, to be a trigger. Chat not... Actually, just asked me to disagree with you. Um, Brian has asked that music can convey emotion. And Reliably, maybe not though. specifically, but emotions aren't cut and dried any more than music is cut. Well, and dried. It, it, it can convey an emotion, maybe, but not necessarily universally. Does no. that make sense? Maybe not. Like, to me, this music may convey a certain emotion, and I mean, and there's no doubt that like I'm feeling this emotion mm-hmm. because I'm hearing this music. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is conveying it universally to the same person sitting next to me. Yeah. Yes. But I think at, at the same time, yes. though, that um, that given if you took a random sampling and say um, later on that some of the people who were picked to be sampled were talking about it and they got to discussing what they heard, I think someone could, if they came from similar cultural backgrounds, would be able to say that, I thought, th- I thought that this um, set of notes, this scale uh, made me think of a river while the other person made it think of wind. You could explain to them and they would be able to see how that, oh yeah, I can definitely see how that could sound like a river. I could mm-hmm. definitely see that. And, I, and the other... and. Uh, conversely, they could say, yeah, I can definitely see how that would sound like wind. 
it be something that Westney mentioned in kind of response to? I, I think a vocalist brought this up uh, in in the discussion following. Very very pretentious. I, I, I don't think she understood what they were saying. No, still, but but she did sort of raise a valid point, um, and Westney did did respond to it, which was this idea of well. They were never saying, Wesley and Grun never said that, that music can't convey emotion or uh, a feeling or, or even some sort of fact. Um, but what he did say is, is it's wrong for the, for the artist or the composer to feel like they have any substantial degree of control over that. Um, that whatever they express is going to do things that are that are beyond their imagining when they're playing the piece. Um, and when he, when he even talked about playing the piece, he described it as being more of you are a conduit for the music. You're you're letting it flow through you and and as you know an instrument of yourself. Well, I think an you're instrument. tapping into something here, Stephen. Hmm. Um, maybe not quite what you're trying to get at, but something interesting that comes up is how. A given piece is affected by the performer, which is I, something that is exclusive yeah. to performing yeah, arts. I was like music, theater. I was um, going to s- go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say it would be nice to bring this back to the performer yeah, also yeah, yeah. and talk about the performer because that was, yeah. I think, at the heart of what Dr. Westney was talking about. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, Kevin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what were you saying? Um, well, the, the example I wanted to use was the um, Nine Inch Nails song "Hurt." Um, came out in the mid '90s, thereabouts. Um, the and then in the mid 2000s, very approximate date, Johnny Cash recorded a version of the song, hmm. and it's you wouldn't expect Johnny Cash to do a Nine Inch Nails song, but his last album that he released was an album of cover music, and one of the songs on it was Hurt. And I invite anyone out there to go listen to it. I'm sure you can find the music video on YouTube. It's fantastic. It, it is a it is an amazing performance. The lead singer of Nine Inch Nails, who wrote and composed the song, has actually come out and said, I will no longer sing that song because it isn't mine anymore. Wow. Johnny Cash has taken it and made it his own. And his version is not, even, not just better than mine, but it, it, takes the, it makes the song something new. Huh. Um, and, and now, mind you, there's a little bit of context for the song, because uh, Johnny Cash was less than a year away from dying at the time that he sang it. And you can kind of tell that he knows that in the song. I mean, that just may be hindsight, but it is, it's an amazing song. Like, I, I fully, it, it shows you the power of music, even with lyrics, mm-hmm. and, and what it can do. And then, and then go listen to the Nine Inch Nails version, which is also out there. And it's not bad, but the Johnny Cash song is, is his own song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, Kathleen pointed out that it was the death of his wife that prompted him to sing it. That's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the history of the song very well, but but that is a, a great example of the performer enhancing the piece. Um, you know, to hear hear a, an accomplished violinist play on a Stradivarius, and then to hear me after six lessons play the same song. It's going to be different. Much different. Yes. Yeah. Well, Julie, you learned you, you studied under dr wesney how, how much did he integrate this this kind of uh, discussion of the the performer changing or modifying or enhancing the music what do you, what do you mean enhancing what is printed on the score or sure and um, well okay again you know drawing the distinction between the the music right. as experience in the head and the music as it's annotated um one thing that that we did talk a lot about well is not necessarily feeling like you have to play 
everything exactly. I mean, you take something. I mean, in some music you could do this with, and some music you really couldn't. Mm-hmm. But taking a few liberties of your own. Um, you know, this says to play soft, but how soft do you really want to make it? Do you want to make it soft by not hitting the keys as hard? Do you want to push down the soft pedal, which changes the entire timbre yeah. of, of the music? I mean, taking liberties like that. Um, but something Dr. Westney was talking about a lot that was interesting was kind of what you get as the performer mm-hmm. from playing, because it is very different to play in front of an audience than it is to play in the practice room. Yeah. And, and what, what makes a, that difference was something he talked about um, and that's really interesting to me. I wrote a paper for Music History a few years back about two different famous pianists, Glenn Gould and Vladimir Horowitz. I don't know if you've ever heard of either one of them. Glenn Gould hated public performance and preferred recording. And most of his... You can hardly find any of his live performances. Most of them are recordings that he did. He was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But Vladimir Horowitz just loved the concert stage because of what he felt like he got from that. And uh, I don't know. I thought that was, that was such a fascinating topic to me. That's why I wrote the paper. But right, and and that that again comes back to what what they were talking about a lot during the symposium was this concept of meeting. That in a performance for an audience, the performer and the audience meet in a way, and that changes the expression of the music. That uh, many times, Dr. Westney, he said, felt like the audience was sitting right there next to him, and uh, you know, either looking over his shoulder or just just experiencing it right there um, as, as if you know they were they were seeing everything go through him as if they were sort of commenting on it as it as it came through and and it did it said it, it changed the way that the music came out maybe that he was performing it but certainly not how he was consciously thinking about it I think that was that was a point is it was right. sort of this this unconscious <laughs> ineffable experience I don't know how philosophical you can get with that yeah. that's kind of moving into the spiritual realm but you know Michael we haven't heard from you I in think a while. The, you um, think I that? think something that's definitely that's worthy of note and something that um, that we that uh, I thought of when we started talking about the performance aspect was um, in the uh, Baroque period um, composers when they would write music for their performances they would leave bits of it open for the star performer the virtuoso and the virtuoso was expected to mm-hmm. improvise on the spot yep a a cadenza a cadenza and um, so, like, a, a composer could write a piece, a concert piece, and depending on whoever was performing said concert piece, the cadenza could be different each time. Mm-hmm. So there, there's de- that, definitely that aspect of the performer taking the music, and um, certainly they would be enhancing it because they would be adding to it actively as it was being performed. Mm-hmm. And I just I found that was so amazing. And we would listen to pieces in music appreciation where you would have... Violinists who could do amazing things with the uh, with the uh, violin, and though those people become almost as famous or even more famous than the composer who wrote the piece, hmm. like kind of almost like Johnny Cash taking that Nine Inch Nail song and making it his, yeah, through his performance of it. And, and how much? It's a, it's an open question as to you know how much is a piece of music the property of the original composer? Because mm-hmm. once it once it is put down on paper. It's like a form realized. And what they talked about was, was this sort of the idea of music as a pattern that either exists sort of in a platonic realm and, you know, a, a composer takes it down and writes it down, or it comes to the composer's head and then they write it down, you know, from nothing or from other experience. But once it's written down, that form 
it changes every time it's realized. Um, maybe that musical pattern exists in some sort of con- a consistent fashion, but we do have these these performances that are variations on that on that form. That well, even instrument to instrument, even yeah. though they might sound very similar, they are very instruments are never no instrument sounds exactly the same. Right. Mm-mm. Right, so you certainly have this idea of music as theory and then music actually put out there as performance. Like the composer may have this idea in his head mm-hmm. uh, or her head of what um, the piece should sound like. But depending on who's performing it, depending on um, the acoustics, depending on the mood of the audience, depending on so many different factors, each performance of it can be different mm-hmm. and can um, trigger say- different emotions. Could we comfortably say that, and I think it's something we've, we've kind of gotten to without actually just saying it outright, hmm. that music is not complete without the performer, and Absolutely. that any given piece is defined by the performer? Hmm. Even, even if they play it technically correct to the exact specifications of how it's supposed to be composed, that doesn't happen until it's performed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can it even happen at all? I mean, is there a way? I mean, I guess if we talk ideally, there is a way for a performer to perfectly reproduce a piece of music as written. But then you get into the question of value. Then is that preferred to uh, you know a really good variation or a really well performed variation? Yeah, and I would say no. Like as specific as a composer can be, they can't be that specific. Yeah. Of course not. And that's one of the nice things about musical notation is it sort of, uh, what's a good, it's, it's like a seed. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the score is like a seed and then the, the performance is the plant that grows from that. Obviously, no plant is going to be identical. You're going to have certain, certain aspects of it. Um, obviously, a tree is always going to go you know, up and branch off. Um, but the way that it does so, it's very different, very different each time. Yes. Um, so in the, in the same way, I think, all that, that we can really do is propagate the seeds of music and that each time a seed reaches a performer, it grows into something beautiful and unique. But that, that, that brings us back to an interesting point when we were talking about the definition of music as something happening in the mind due right. to a sound event. Mm-hmm. All right, um, but certainly you'd have to say that all the elements, the, the putting down on paper, the theory that goes into it, the performance, everything, all of that is certainly related I mean, I don't think we can... And it's I'm not necessary sure we, to the process, yeah. I'm not sure if we can, like, say absolutely that it is solely the event in the mind. Mm-hmm. It has to be... There has to be more to it than that, because then that leaves out the idea of, well, what is the theory, what is the written word, what does all of this mean in the context of the performance? Mm-hmm. That, certainly. I don't think we really can come to a concrete definition of music, uh, uh, other if, than it's that which we call music. If, if, uh, You're welcome. Yeah. If, my, if my first few weeks in uh, Greek philosophy have taught me anything, especially in my readings of Socrates, is that every time somebody asks a what is question, you can almost never get the answer you're looking no. for. Like definitions. Or end answer, period. At all. I mean, like, um, he would go up to experts and ask them questions about stuff they supposedly knew about and expose them for being, you know, for not necessarily being fools, but for simply, you know, knowing how to do something, but not necessarily knowing what that something is. Yeah. And I kind of wonder, like, do you think, Julie, that it's even, 
that one should even do philosophy of music. Is there anything that, that could really be gained from, from creating a theory of, of music that had sort of a, maybe a, a loose definition, a firm definition, and some, said something about how we apply it? Man, that's tough. That's a really hard question. Could it add anything to the performance? Could it add anything to the, the enjoyment I wouldn't, of the I wouldn't say if you walked into a concert hall that if you'd read a whole book about the philosophy of music, if that would really help you. Mm. In, um, it might trigger different things when it, you've heard the music. It might. It, might, it might cause you to notice different, different things that are going on or might be going on. Um, that may either enhance experience or make it worse. Even mm-hmm. I don't. Either way, um, I, I would. I would certainly say that um, after taking music appreciation and understanding um, how the different elements work together mm-hmm. to provide us with this wonderful experience we call listening to music, I, it's definitely an, enhanced that 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 knowledge. And um, I think an interesting question we can pose, like you know, we have the philosophy of language where they talk about is there a meta language? Can we come up with a meta music that would? Go over and above the experience of listening uh, to it. Philip Glass does that. Really? How Philip Glass, I don't know, he feels very meta to me. <laughs> give, give an example. I've, I've not heard much of his stuff. You, you can't describe Philip Glass. <laughs> you have to hear it. It's ineffable. Okay, it but, but what, what makes this any different than listening to a Bach piece? Mm. How could Bach not be as ineffable or whatever as Philip Glass is to you? I, I, I was getting more to the meta, not to the ineffability. Well, what makes Philip Glass more meta than Bach? Um, because Philip Glass, and, and I don't know much about Bach, so I could be wrong that Bach does this as well, but Philip Glass does a lot of... His music seems to question itself. I, and that's, I realize it's a very strange thing to say, but it seems to, what I've heard, take a... Something he does is he'll take a piece, a, a song, you know, a, a moment of music, and then do everything he can with it, and try different things, and figure it out within the larger piece itself. Now Bach may do that; I don't know. Okay, but that feels very meta to me. Um, I think this is where, just because I've um, studied Bach more oh, yeah. and yeah, studied you, things you that have. Bach is pretty meta because okay. um, That's entirely there's, there's a genre called a fugue which ah, um, fugues yeah. are mind blowing and Bach mastered them yeah. in, in every sense that I can think of that and they t- he takes a piece of music it always starts with a theme and you play your theme and then it is then transferred to I mean you can have well for the keyboard there are usually three and four voices mm-hmm. and they he takes a theme and he layers it over each other and then there's a counter theme and he inverts the theme and so he he, he writes an entire piece of music based on um just a few just just a very very small theme yeah, what, what little phrase of notes like and and the the operations it's basically like doing operations on a mathematical equation like you you lengthen it you play it you know twice as slow over yes. the the original um, you you invert it like so the notes the notes are then uh, opposite upside down you play it backwards um, then you play it backwards and all this and time that the other fast, voices like, are layering over each other yeah. and all still fitting harmonically it's it really is mind blowing and and I think there were different like orders of fugues right like you could do um, well or or it was ordered by the number of parts in the fugue okay yes um, like three well, or I'm trying to three find four video voice. hold on. Let me. Well, there's actually I've a website put together by a university mm-hmm. 
wish I could remember. It's on the, te- the Texas Tech Theory website, the link to it, that some guy did all this research. And all of the... There's a set of preludes and fugues. Fugues, Bach wrote 48 for the keyboard specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one in every... Actually, there's two in every key. But... Because he wrote two books of them. But... This guy has taken them, and it has a score, mm-hmm. and while it, it like, plays while it's playing, but it, like, pulls out the themes, it's all, like, animated, and oh. it's so interesting, and I it tells like you everything that that's going on. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay, I, I Kevin, Kevin did find it here. This is, this is a Bach thing that was really spiffy. I don't know much about it at okay. all. Um, post it in the, in the chat room. Well, yeah, I posted I did. Okay, so we'll go ahead and watch it, this and, and see if any of the audio comes through. It's a it's apparently JS Bot Crab Cannon on a Mobius Strip. You have to kind of watch it Crab to get Cannon it. Crab Cannon on a Mobius <laughs> Strip. I love that title. Did it stop? No, it's still going. See here that it's speeding up. Yeah. Transposing. Wow. And then it's reversing, it's going backward through the same piece. I guess his next are going to flip the staff over. That's just my guess. It just gets trippier, by the way. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> that is now, cool. Now it's playing from both ends. That is so cool. If that's not music it questioning itself, then I don't know what is. That's pretty meta. <laughs> it is pretty meta. That is incredible. It's, it's not over. I, I I know, but but I only want to play a little bit on the on the show. No, here. no, keep going. It's totally worth to do the whole thing. <sighs> all right, all right. It, it, it's a music episode. We should have music. Yeah.
crazy. That is... Thank you and, for sharing that so with us, I Kevin. apologize, Julie, because I forgot about stuff like this. Yeah. Bach is pretty meta. Yeah. Bach is... Uh, he's perhaps the meta of... The meta-est of the metas. Um, and, you know, read Gertel Escher Bach, obviously, Have for, you read for that? more. I have started it. I have it. Oh. It's good. It's, it's hard. And I, I understand a little bit more about that from just so the, is, the little that I've written, read it, so far. The, the great thing is, Gertel Escher Bach is also written meta. Like, yeah. he, the way that he constructs the book is in such a way that it conveys the concepts that he talks about in any particular section. So, so, yeah. so we have M.C. Escher, an artist, Gödel, the mathematician, and Bach yes. all in the same book. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Is it like and, the eternal golden thread? Or uh, is it like the subtitle? I don't remember. Eternal Some golden braid. Braid. There yeah. you go. Because, you know, you got to use the same letters. But, okay. yeah. Uh, another really, really epic work to check out. Um well, we've come to the end of our time here on, on Bad Philosophy, so we'll go ahead and wrap things up. Um, thank you, people in the chat room, for, for uh, watching and, and listening and contributing, even though we weren't able to, to get you directly. Um, thank you for being their voice, Kevin. Yes, and thank you for You're being right your inter, our, uh, interlocutor. Michael, uh, first off, thank you for being on the show. Uh, where can people find out more about you, contact you, follow you, stalk I, you? I... Um, I have a Twitter. I don't use it um, at all. I mean, I, I got it so like Kevin and Steven would stop bugging me about getting one. <laughs> and so um, I have a Facebook, I guess. I don't know. Um, you have one of those nice, snazzy, top-level URLs? Oh, no. No? No, uh, of course not. I mean, like... Michael H. Mayslip? <laughs> no. <Something? laughs> no, that's... I, 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 don't, I don't roll like Steven does. Uh, I roll a little bit more privately. Gotcha. Well, it is M Hayslip H A Y S L I P. Uh, if you would like to follow Michael on Twitter, uh, Julie, you do use Twitter. I, I use Twitter occasionally, but I do not have text messaging, so I only update on the internet, which ah. really stinks. Um, and I only got it because I was in Korea and I wanted to stalk people in the U.S. Because ah. um, Julie's and, creepy like and that, and give them a, a glimpse of the crazy things I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my Twitter handle is JP Meadows. Mm-hmm. So. So you can follow her there. And uh, Kevin, are you still doing uh, Kevin Review Something Every Day? Um, I'm trying to. Uh, classes are killing me right now, so it may be Kevin Review Something occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. K-R-S-O. <laughs> yeah. But uh, where can people see that and, and find out more about you? Uh, Twitter, no, YouTube.com slash Kevsund and Twitter.com slash Kevsund for... All of the Kevson you can stand. And then some. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, y'all can, of course, follow me. I am at uh, twitter.com slash storrence, S T O R E N C E. Or at Facebook, uh, you can look me up there. S, I think it's Stephen T. Yes, I got Stephen T on Facebook. Very, very happy about High that. High five for that. Um, also, we do want to oh, remind no. you that we have uh, merchandise now in the Bad Philosophy store. Really? At, yes. Printfection.com. You can buy a Bad Philosophy t-shirt with a very snazzy logo on the front. Uh, mine should be here soon. I, I ordered one as soon as I set the store up, so I should be able to tell you uh, within Stephen, a couple I, days. I do want to say, because I, I tweeted you about it briefly, Yeah. I think we should get a 
since we have a store now, I think we should make the Viva La Cavolution shirt. Ooh, yes. I like that idea. Um, I'm actually thinking of, of switching fairly soon to uh, Zazzle.com fairly soon because they, they have a greater selection of, of merchandise that you can actually create on the store. So, you know, coffee mugs and... and um, Mouse pads, mouse and pads, and, and bobbleheads, bar- barbecue smocks, and all that. I'm, good I'm hoping stuff. for bobbleheads. That would be cool. Have a Descartes lock bobblehead, or yeah. even a Kevin bobblehead. Um, <laughs> and that would be pretty amazing. If you so choose, you can also uh, donate directly to Bad Philosophy. If you don't feel like getting a product out of it, or if you just feel like giving us more money than you can possibly give by buying our products, you can donate on the uh, Bad Philosophy website. Uh, that's badphilosophy.com slash blog slash wares with a Z. We thank you all for uh, watching and listening, uh, and we'll see you next time on Bad Philosophy. And you could have it all My empire of dirt What do you think I'm going to John D. Windmill kick you in the face? That would be hilarious. John D. Windmill kick. John yeah. D. She's one of the characters in the drama. She windmill kicks a guy in the face. That's it awesome. It's pretty hilarious. awesome. She's like, ah! <laughs> I knew it was going to happen, too. But when you it happened, it, like, just because I knew it was going to happen didn't make it any less awesome when it did. Yeah. Full of broken thoughts. Kevin is now the voice of God, according to chat. <laughs> On day one, I'm creating flowers. Flowers. <laughs> Puppy dogs. What's day two? And baloney. Day two is music, right? Day two should be music. If, day if two will do music. And, Why are you creating baloney? Nobody likes baloney. So, desk bells. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna make desk bells and name tags. What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away In the end And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down If I could start again A million miles away I would keep myself I would find a way At philosophy.com You should put it in a toaster.